Podcast, bringing you insightful analysis on business and government news from a local to a global perspective. And now, here are your hosts of the 10th, Dan McCracken and Rocky Lawson. Greetings and welcome to the 10th Podcast. I'm Rocky Lawson. On this episode of the 10th, I have a wonderful guest. Her name is Lena Attar. She is a Syrian-American architect, a writer, and philanthropist from Aleppo. She is the co-founder and CEO of the Kram Foundation, located in Chicago, Illinois. The main focus of the Kram Foundation is the Syrian humanitarian crises. Their ambassadors and mentors are developing innovative education programs for Syrian refugee youth. They distribute aid to Syrian refugee families, and they also provide funding for projects initiated by Syrians for Syrians. Lena is the co-founder of the How Many More Project and serves on the board of directors of the Syria Campaign. Here is my conversation with Lena Tarr as we discuss her non-for-profit and the current humanitarian crisis in Syria. I hope you enjoy the show. Lena, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So to start off, I'd like to get a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, my name is Lina Sergi Attar, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Karam Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on building a better future for Syria. I'm also Syrian-American. I was born in the United States, but lived half of my life in Syria, in Aleppo, um, one of the oldest cities in the world. Um, and I'm an architect and writer. And you are the co-founder of the Karam Foundation, correct? Yes. Where did you get your inspiration to begin the startup? And, and who were the first people to help you with this project? Uh, well, we started the organization in Chicago um, in 2007, and Karam means generosity in Arabic, and we were really inspired to create an organization that focused on this concept of giving, and it re I was really inspired by my father growing up in Aleppo. Uh, charity was also was one of the really important things in his life, and we grew up around it. And so I wanted to kind of instill this uh, sense of generosity and charity in the work that we do um, locally here in Chicago, as well as internationally. And I also saw that there was a kind of disconnect in the way that people thought about charity and thought about humanitarian aid in that either in their minds, um, they were those very large agencies like, you know, the Red Cross and UNICEF versus, you know, sending money back home wherever home was. Um, specifically to the countries or the cities that you were from. And I wanted to kind of expand that idea of giving to include smaller organizations that are very effective and innovative in the things that they were doing. And some of those things that I was inspired by was, you know, the microcredit loan movement at the time, um, building schools for girls in Afghanistan and Pakistan, water projects and even local projects such as helping in the resettlement of Iraqi refugees at the time. 
Um, in 2011, when the humanitarian crisis uh, began in Syria, and uh, we started having a lot of people in emergency need, we really had to refocus the entire organization to focus on the Syrian humanitarian crisis. And we evolved as an organization because of that and began to grow um, unexpectedly um, as this crisis became the largest humanitarian crisis of our lifetime. Now, you've spent a lot of time actually in Syria, and your organization goes into Syria to provide aid. And how many missions have you have you done in Syria thus far? So we don't go into Syria currently because it's too dangerous, but we do work on the Syrian border in Turkey. Okay. Uh, we also have a team inside Syria that manages our projects. Uh, so we are functioning inside Syria as an organization doing humanitarian aid and also managing uh, 10 schools this year we have um, in Syria that we manage and fund. But our team does go frequently to the Syrian border and our work with Syrian refugee kids in Turkey um, has expanded greatly in the past four years where we do different kinds of projects for children from taking kids out of child labor to send them back to school to helping university students fund their education. And uh, we do a lot of work at a new um, center that we're very proud of called Karam House which is an innovation center for Syrian refugee teens um, where they can actually build their ideas and we are helping them build themselves um, as future leaders. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful mission that you guys have. And one of the interesting things that I was going through your website and, and I was looking is that you do a variety of different humanitarian aid efforts. And, and you're talking a little bit about that, having entrepreneurship and education. Can you maybe provide a little bit more detail for our listeners about the different projects that you have going on and highlight maybe some of the, the key ones that are that are in progress? Absolutely. Uh, education is a huge uh, initiative for us. We believe that building the future of Syria and Syrian kids comes with education, and that's where we can actually make change long-term in the future. And so we are invested in creating innovative education opportunities specifically for Syrian refugee teenagers, boys and girls, because we believe that these are some of the most vulnerable um, members of the refugee community and where you can actually make a huge impact in a teenager's life by turning their lives around just by simply opening up the possibility for opportunities for the future because their aspirations and dreams are really big, they're limitless, uh, but their realities are extremely bleak. And so what we do is we go in and we have mentorship programs um, in entrepreneurship, technology, um, creativity. So we give workshops in um, things such as, you know, making your own business or coding, uh, graphic design, website design, culinary arts, murals, um, liter literary arts such as journaling, photography, journalism, and all of these kinds of creative initiatives that teenagers really actually are very drawn to. And, and they uh, get to learn the skills that they could use um, for their jobs in the future, as well as be mentored by both local mentors that we train who are Syrian refugee um, young professionals, as well as international mentors who travel um, on a periodic basis to give creative workshops um, to the kids there. So we're really proud of this initiative. It's called Karam House, and we also see it as a model that we can repeat, and we will be building another Karam House in 2018 in Istanbul and hopefully in other places as well. 
Um, we're, that's one big project we're working on. Another big project that we're working on that actually um, is really important is the Sponsor Syrian Refugee Family Program, and that's on our website, website as well. And that's a program where we actually adopt Syrian refugee families who are extremely impoverished, most of them from female-led households, and, uh, and a lot of them have had to send their kids to child labor because the work laws and permits in Turkey and other neighboring countries just don't allow them to work. So they have to send their kids to work and instead of going to school. So we created this program where we support the families and give them a mon monthly cash stipend on condition that they send their kids to school. This program is also run completely by our Syrian refugee staff on the ground that come from the same communities as these families. So it's a really powerful way to engage the community, uh, to get these kids back to school, invest in their futures, while at the same time um, giving a little bit of relief to these families and the space to be able to stand up on their own feet. Many of our listeners are interested because the mainstream media narrative has been consistent over the last few years of, of seeing just the dire straits of the civilian population and, and being a war-torn country. Could you describe to our listeners what is the general situation in Syria right now? What is going on from the people that are, that are living it? Because you are working with everyday people, everyday children. What are some of their narratives and can you give a little context on on what is going on in Syria right now? So the situation in Syria is extremely dire. The humanitarian conditions are uh, extreme. Um, you have different areas in Syria which are still besieged. Besieged meaning um, because we have pockets inside Syria of civilian population that are completely cut off of any kind of humanitarian aid because of regime and extremist checkpoints. Uh, the vast majority of these checkpoints are regime-managed checkpoints. This means that children right now and elderly and women are malnourished and um, are dying of diseases uh, where that are completely curable and have medication literally 10 minutes away from where they're at. So this is starvation and uh, and um, see, uh, like putting people under siege uh, because of uh, political um, you know political uh, reasons and uh, this is one type of war crime that's happening in Syria the bombings are continuous the bombings are daily on civilian populations and uh, and we also see bombings from different factors such as the Russian Air Force um, the U.S. coalition against ISIS Air Force that are killing civilians every day. And this affects families, affects children, affects many neighborhoods and cities and towns and villages inside Syria. This is what actually is causing and has caused this refugee crisis. Right now, in terms of numbers, you have over 11 million people who are Syrian and displaced, meaning they no longer live in their homes. The 6 million people inside Syria who are displaced and over 5 million people um, who are Syrian, that are refugees, uh, mostly in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, and over a million people in Europe. In the United States, we have over 15,000 Syrian refugees, um, which is also a, an extremely small number compared to the number of refugees that were taken in by countries much less um, wealthier than the United States. So our refugee policy here in, in, in America is extremely weak and is becoming weaker under President Trump. 
Um, that's kind of like the big picture. But if you go in and work with families and work with Syrians like we do, we work with Syrian refugees here in the United States. We work with refugees in Turkey, Lebanon and Jordan, and we're in constant contact with Syrians on the ground. Syrian youth specifically are really focused on the future. They want to go to university. They want to be able to prepare themselves to have good jobs. They want to build in the communities that they're living in. And many youth that I meet are extremely enthusiastic about learning these skills that we teach them. And they tell me things that they want to be coders or animators or architects or novelists. Um, they're hyper-focused on the future and that's actually what gives us hope and inspiration to move forward because for us as Syrians and Syrian Americans, it's devastating to see um, the kind of loss that we've been watching happen in Syria for the past six and a half years, almost seven years, and the, the level of war and destru destruction that has happened, and really, to be honest, the genocide that is happening inside Syria under the world's watch with the inter international community really meeting this with complete silence and, um, and indifference to human life. So this is how we've chosen to confront this, um, this war and confront this uh, massive injustice is by focusing on the future and helping these kids and helping these families really make it and move forward and start to mend their lives. You raise a very interesting point and we look at global crises, conflicts across the world, Kosovo being one of them, various civil wars that is occurring across Africa. Why hasn't the international community been more aggressive in providing aid to the people of Syria? And, and who are the political actors that need to be deployed in order to help this humanitarian crisis? Could you give a little uh, insight on that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't know why. Um, there, it's very, Syria was uh, painted under the Obama administration as being too complicated or if we intervene that it will get worse. That's what the Syrians have been told from the beginning since 2011. And, uh, and it's very important to, be, to remember the origins of this um, conflict and this humanitarian crisis, which was um, part of the Arab Spring in 2011 when Syrians took to the streets unarmed, chanting freedom and dignity. They wanted to live in freedom and dignity after living under a dictatorship for over 40 years. They were inspired by the Arab Spring revolutions happening across the region, and they had decided that it was their turn to claim freedom and dignity and justice. Um, this is a brutal regime that has tortured and killed um, thousands of people over the past 40 years. It is the kingdom of silence as it's known. When you live in Syria, you live in extreme fear of the government. And the, these protesters were met with bullets, then they were met with tanks, they were met with chemical weapon attacks and um, and the, the, the armed conflict that began opened up the space for extremists such as ISIS and other extremist groups that are completely foreign to Syria kind of take over these pockets um, and the crisis became worse and worse and worse and continuously we were told that if there's an intervention by the international community it will only get worse. Well, it kept on getting worse and worse and worse. Whereas the Syrian regime has allies that stood by them um, and, and basically took part in this genocide of the Syrian people and those allies are Iran, Russia, 
um, and they they basically bolstered up this regime. And you know, this is where we're getting the the, the airstrikes from. This is where we're getting the chemical weapons attacks from. And it kind of continued to b grow bigger and bigger and bigger with the idea that if we intervene, we're going to have another Iraq on our hands. Well, now we have a situation that's much worse than Iraq, and we have a death toll of over 500,000 people. We have over 100,000 people that have disappeared um, in, in Assad's dungeons. And uh, we have this refugee crisis that has affected all of the countries and has destabilized Europe. And, um, and we're continuously seeing how this crisis actually wasn't too far and too foreign and too complicated for us to be involved in. It actually involves all of us. And, uh, and Syrians fear that it is too late to save Syria and save, um, save the people's original cries for freedom and dignity because um, right now all we really want is for the violence to stop and for refugees be, to be able to return home and, and actually have a life inside their own country. Well, what do you see based upon the current situation and, and obviously the people are still hopeful to get a united Syria, but you, you have two parts here and you talked about the Arab Spring and some of the effects that happened after the Arab Spring where you had a complete collapse once a particular dictator was overthrown. Is the consensus of the population to overthrow Bashar and then and put in place a different type of government? Uh, being that you do have the influence of ISIS, it makes it quite a complicated situation. What's the consensus of the population? Where do they want the direction of the country to go? I mean, the thing, the other, this is a huge myth that's also been portrayed in the media very often is that this question of, you know, that it's, the, it's a choice between Assad and ISIS. And that's absolutely false. Um, this is not the choice of Syrians between Assad and ISIS. Many, many Syrians are anti-Assad and anti-ISIS. Those Syrians are the Syrians who began this revolution. They are the Syrians who took to the streets. And they are the ones that, kind of, that nobody actually, their voices are not heard. Uh, and they continuously, they became drowned out by the violence and by the extremists and by um, Assad's brutality. Uh, these are the voices that we don't listen to. Civil society groups inside Syria still until this day have peaceful protests, uh, protests in creative ways that we never hear about, uh, putting their lives in danger, not just from Assad and not just from ISIS, but from other extremist groups on the ground. They constantly do demand um, some form of um, control over their own destinies. You see people organizing and creating local governments in areas outside regime control. And so I can't talk about like a consensus of the entire Syrian people. They are not one monolithic group, but um, it is being kind of sold to us in the media that after all of this, this has happened and seeing um, ISIS's um, presence, that maybe just keeping Bashar al-Assad as president would be the best way forward for Syria. And I think that that is a huge, um, it's a huge uh, injustice not just to Syrians, but really to humanity. This is a huge shame on all of us and all of, of humanity's um, conscious to actually even discuss the idea of a president who has committed these massive war crimes 
to say there's no other Syrian that could rule Syria better than him. Um, it's actually a disgrace and very shameful for people to say that, and it, and it dishonors all of, the, all of the Syrian people who have sacrificed so much for their freedom. Um, it's, it, it dishonors their memory and also doesn't um, acknowledge that Syrians have agency, they are capable of, of ruling their country, and we just never gave them an opportunity to do so. You're doing some amazing work in all of your missions that you're providing aid to those that are that are really the most vulnerable of society. Where can our listeners find more about the Quran Foundation and the mission that you're serving? And if you want to give any websites or things like that where people can go to. Absolutely. Our website is karamfoundation.org. That's K-A-R-A-M foundation.org. You'll find our programs and you'll find a lot of information about us. I also urge you to follow our Facebook page and also our Instagram. Um, Karam House actually has its own Instagram and a Facebook page. And if, read, and if listeners are um, interested, uh, there's a lot of content there in Arabic, but it's really cool for people who are interested in how kids actually interact on social media, um, the Syrian refugee kids. This is how we actually connect with the kids in the community and uh, and sign them up for different kinds of courses. And you'll see lots of videos and daily photos from Karam House showing what kids are actually doing there um, in terms of their workshops and what their accomplishments are. And it's a really cool place to follow the, that kind of uplifting news to see um, the kind of work that we're doing to help build the future. Well, Lena, I want to thank you again for taking time to come on the show and to talk about your organization and the work that you're doing. And uh, again, uh, the best of wishes to, to you and your mission in Syria to build a future country that's sustainable and that's one of peace and prosperity. Thank you so much. That concludes this episode of the 10th Podcast. We thank you for listening. For more information about us, you can visit us at www.thetenthdistrict.com and on iTunes, The Tenth Podcast, make sure you subscribe and you will automatically get all of our new episodes that are released. Until next time, this is Rocky Lawson signing off.